We're in the midst of a series called My Real Family, not My Perfect TV Family, but My Real Family. And we're talking about the dynamics that make families work. When Danny Tanner lost his wife unexpectedly, he had to do something because he had three young girls to raise. So he called his stepbrother and one of his childhood friends and they moved in with him and together the three men, Danny, Jesse and Joey, raised the three girls, DJ, Stephanie and Michelle. And with friends like Becky and Kimmy Gibbler, Steve, they made it work, right? How many of you are Full House fans? All right. How many of you never watch a show in your life? Two of them right here. All right, one of them's my own. Okay, and so here's the thing. All right, Full House came at a time in the early 90s when it was part of a block of shows that showed kind of family life, and it showed a different kind of family life. And for eight seasons, eight seasons, with catchphrases like how rude and cut it out, they worked through all of their differences over time. It was such a popular show years after it went off the air That when Netflix was talking about its first revival of an old TV show, it came out with the idea to do Fuller House with the stars that were the girls in the original playing the parents now. And it is one of Netflix's most watched original programs all over this little family that came together. Now here's the thing. Full House is a different dynamic than family matters or family ties that we talked about the first couple of weeks because it's not a traditional family model. It's a extended or blended or mended or it's something different. And it's not the first sitcom that kind of introduced us to that. I mean, there was that one about a lady who was busy, three girls, all of them had hair of gold. Like their mother, the youngest one in curls. You're supposed to go. There you go. You missed your cue. I'm disappointed in you, right? And so the Brady Bunch, this idea was that Carol Brady, Mike Brady, had three girls, three boys, and they married, and they blended their families together. Now, the truth is, the reason that those shows took off, the reason that Full House was there, the reason that the Brady Bunch is still popular in some parts of the world is because it shows a new reality that is developing in our culture that is um, growing of people living in non-traditional family setups. In fact, recent studies show that almost one in five kids will grow up in a household with a step-parent. And that's not counting households where they're single parents, which is also a significant number, That's not counting homes where a movement, especially in Christian circles, a great movement to adopt and to bring them into the family and be a part of a family. It doesn't include those numbers. We have to realize that in the midst of a lot of our lives and a lot of your lives, that a family doesn't look like sometimes we act like families should look. Families look, feel different by the grace of God and under His direction. Blended families, mended families... Uh, extended families, all the words that are used out there, come with their unique set of challenges. Divided loyalties and differing parenting styles and the financial demands of larger families and 
competition between members of of different families brought in to blend together. Difficulty of co-parenting with an ex, uh, with someone that was previously a part of your life. The favoritism that sometimes comes from parental involvement when you blend families together. I was thinking about this week, I read uh, a quote from a mom who was entering into a blending marriage situation. It's a 41-year-old mother divorced after 15 years, was remarrying uh, with a guy. She had herself and a five-and-a-half-year-old adopted daughter. Jack was the man she was marrying. He had two biological daughters that were 19 and 20 and an 11-year-old adopted son. And as they asked her, what was she looking forward to? What was she excited about? What was she feeling? This is her own words. She said, my life is filled with continuous contradictions. I want his children to love me and be with us all the time. I do not want them at all. I want my daughter all the time instead of 50% of the time. I do not want my ex-husband to father her. I want Jack to father her. I don't want my daughter at all. I want a fifth child, our child. I don't want any children. I experience a complex emotional package of jealousy, anger, and fear. I'm jealous of his ex-wife. I'm jealous of his children, especially his two daughters. I feel inadequate. I don't bake like his former wife does. I feel angry that his ex-wife Kathy doesn't work outside the home. I feel paralyzed when I see Jack's children. I become inarticulate. I become scared. I don't know how to react. And then she said, and you can imagine the complication when you add in all of their points of view to that as well. Now, here's the thing. Blending, extended, non-traditional looking families are not new. Like they've been around for like a long, long time. Like Old Testament long For instance, if I were to ask you to name the heroes of the Old Testament, it would not take you long to get to people like Abraham and Joseph and David. And yet if you think about their family structures, I asked the first service, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the family structures of Abraham, Joseph, and David? And somebody yelled out, messed up. Right? And if you've read Genesis lately, if you haven't, go back and read Genesis. Abraham and Joseph's family especially. Now, Joseph is a part of Abraham's family, but it is messed up. Abraham has a promise to God. He's going to have a family. It's not happened fast enough. So what does he do? He goes out and he gets his maidservant, and they have a kid together, and then suddenly there's rivalry there, and the next generation and the next generation don't learn their lesson, down to Joseph's generation, where Joseph is the favorite son because he's of the favorite wife and has a coat of many colors, and brothers and sibling rivalry is there. They throw him in a pit. They were going to kill him, but they're gracious and merciful to him. So they put him in a pit and they sell him off into slavery because that was the nice thing to do in that moment. And you think about David. David, how's David described in, in the Old Testament? He's a man after God's own heart. Like, this is God's chosen king. And yet David messed up. If you want to read a tragic story, read the end of David's family. I mean, when you get to the end of David's life, his family is at war with each other, literally. One of his sons, Amnar, who likes a girl, a daughter from another mother named Tamar, and Amnon takes advantage of Tamar, and Absalom, Tamar's brother, gets upset about it and kills Amnon, and then there is a civil war within the family. To the point at the end of his life, one of David's wives, 
which is always a dangerous thing to say, right? One of David's wives. Haggith wants her son Adonijah to be the king, and so she gets a group of people, David's sons, to come together, and they're all in one place yelling, Adonijah is king, Adonijah is king, long live Adonijah. In another place, Bathsheba with David and their son Solomon and the high priest Zadok are yelling out, long live Solomon, Solomon is king. And there's literally a coup trying to happen in David's family. Now, those are all really bad examples, all right? But there's an example in Scripture of a blended, extended, bonus family that you may not immediately think of. Like at the beginning of the New Testament, there's this family where a man is told that the wife that he's about to marry is going to have a son and it's not going to be his. Right? I mean, we don't normally think of Jesus as being a part of a blended family. But Joseph has to have an angelic vision To come to the place where he accepts what's going on and becomes the dad. And when he does, he's a shining example of what it means to blend families together. We know even from the brief description of who Joseph is in scripture. That he was a man who had great respect for his family. That believed in God's plan. That sacrificed whatever needed to sacrifice. And was patient in how God was going to develop it. And as we think about the challenges, the unique challenges that come from blended, bonus, extended families. I think one of the most important things to remember is just like Joseph, we must trust God's plan and the process of development and learn to be patient in the middle of it. This a little side note for you. As I've been preparing sermons for the last few months, as I've been looking through um, different topics completely, as we've been talking around all kinds of things, we talked about the iceberg and we talked about the pinata and we've talked about family relationships and There's this word that just keeps coming back to me. And it is that every good thing that God develops in life requires patience from us to develop. And we live in a society where patience is in limited supply. I thought about it this week, too, because I was talking to my dad over the last few days. Um, Some of you know this about my dad. Some of you have have witnessed this with my dad. My dad is an expert barbecue grill master Um, and we're talking about for you guys in the room we are planning the third annual men's barbecue meat extravaganza that will happen at the end of april all right we're talking about that and excited about that but dad sometimes will just throw out nuggets of wisdoms when you talk to him like dads do occasionally you know you just have conversations and then all of a sudden it'll be dad will say something like oh that's pretty and so we were talking about uh timing and what we needed to buy and all that stuff going back over the notes we've had and dad said you know one of the reasons some people's barbecue doesn't turn out very good is because they want to mess with it too much and for good barbecue you just got to let it sit not bother it like guys will go out there and turn it or baste it or figure it out or check on it open the lid every little bit and dad just lets his go Dad taught me how to cook from an early age on the grill. And I remember when I was pastoring in Ripley, um, we went to these people, how, these house and so, somehow I got relayed to them that I could, I could grill out. And so we got invited to their house. They paid for everything and they said, hey, would you cook the steaks? I was like, sure, that'll be fine. And so we cooked the steaks and we started eating about 30 minutes later than they thought we would eat. And uh, we walked in there and they said, what's going on? And the uh, 
the guys whose house had us over goes, well, if you ask Lyle to cook the steaks, they're going to turn out really good, but they're going to take much longer than you expect. Because you have to have patience. You let them develop. Well, when God works in our lives, he often works through things that cause us to develop patience. And so this week, as we're talking about this perfect, that is not really a reality, but real families, I thought we couldn't go through this series without having the discussion about families that are blended, families that um, don't look like the typical model out there of the husband and wife and the two and a half kids and the white picket fence. And as I started to think about the realities of the difficulties and the challenges that are there, One of the things that I quickly realized is, and we're going to talk, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, most of it will be up on this screen, but we're going to be in Ephesians 5 for a little bit this morning. Here's what I'll tell you. As I began to think about it, as I began to work through it, this is what I came to the conclusion. While the challenges of blended, extended, mended, bonus families are unique... The solutions are not. So while the challenges and the problems have unique understandings and more complex realities, the solutions to those are not unique. It reminded me, I used this example a couple of Wednesday nights ago, and it just keeps coming back to me during this time of year. During this time of year, I'm one of those guys that gets um, enthralled with March Madness, all right? So I watch it, enjoy it, like, you know, fill out the brackets, look through it, see how I'm doing and all that. I don't like looking right now because I'm not doing very well, all right? Um, I saw Lydia, are you up there? Lydia McMillan's in first place in our bracket right now up there. It's a big deal. She's excited about that, all right? Church has a bracket online. Um, staff won it the first four years, and then last year Kelly Clawson won it, and we're trying to regain that. All right, somebody from the staff. And so we're working on that. I watch it. In fact, last night Ava just came up to me. We were getting ready to go to bed, and I had the game playing in the background. She said, why are you always watching the March Madness? I was like, not always. Like it's only on four days out of the year just about, right? And so I watch it. And, and one of the things that I, I think about during this time is all these small schools that get their chance on the big stage. And so like, you know, two weeks ago, they had the conference tournaments and that was playing on ESPN or something. And Eli goes, where are they playing? They look like they're playing at a high school gym. I said, well, it is kind of like that. It's just a real small school. And then they're playing at Bridgestone Arena against North Carolina. Like, I always think about those small schools. There's a, a great movie from a few years ago about high school basketball called Hoosiers. Some of you have seen Hoosiers, all right? Great movie about Indiana basketball and, and in uh, Indiana high school basketball is king. And there's this great scene at the end because it's a small town group of guys that have come together and they fought and they've made their way to this championship game and they play the championship game in this huge arena. And they're from one of these small farm communities that has a tiny gym. And they walk in and the coach, played by Gene Hackman, sees the look on his guys' faces. They're just overwhelmed. Like, look at this place. It's huge. And he pulls out a tape measure. He takes it to the rim and he measures from the top to the floor and says, Ten feet. Ideas just like our gym. And he lays it out from the free throw line to the goal, and it's just like our gem. Measures out the dimensions and says, it's the same here as it is back home. 
Now, here's the truth. While the challenges, while the difficulties that you face in your family, whatever the structure looks like, whatever it is, are unique and different, the solutions, the way through them, are not. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 5 of Ephesians. This week, we're going to look at the beginning of chapter 5 to a set of instructions that aren't necessarily what you immediately think of as, this is for the family. But the truth is, it is the foundation for what he says about the family just a few verses later. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, anytime in Scripture you read, therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? And it comes after an entire book, chapters 1 through 4, where he is laying the foundation for the fact that God has rescued you. He has saved you. He has rescued you in Christ. He has bought you with a price. He has seated you in the heavenlies. It talks about who we are and what we're called to be, about what our life will look like. And then he says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's important because what he's saying to us is not be imitators of God in order to become dearly loved children. He says be imitators of God because you already are a beloved child of God. Here's the thing. Most religions tell you that if you'll just act right and do right and follow the rules, then God will accept you and maybe take you as his child. What Christianity says is completely opposite of that. That because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, if we will accept who he is, if we will receive the gift of salvation he has given, we are dearly loved children of the king no matter what we've done. And we must live and imitate him because of the love he has for us. That we must want to become more like him. A couple of weeks ago, I had a, uh, one of my best friends growing up. Uh, my best friend growing up, Stephen's dad, Steve, Mr. Steve, passed away. And so I went back to Dyersburg um, for the day, for a funeral, to see him, to, you know, to uh, support him. And when I was there, I saw some of my old classmates that I haven't seen in 10, 15, 20 years. And the amazing thing is, they all look like their parents now. Right? Like, how many of you are like my age or a little older and all your friends look like their parents now and you still look like you, right? Like, it doesn't happen to me. Now, here's the truth. When I look in the mirror more and more, I see the resemblance of my family. Or how about this experience? When you go... Um, like you think, say people say, we all kind of look alike. You know, we don't look alike. And then you go like to a family reunion and you go, we all look alike. Like you have that moment of realization, like we all look the same. Or just that thing is as you grow older, you become more like your parents. Like, is anybody in that room? You're wasting our electricity. Let's turn the thing off. Right? Like you become like them. The older I get, the more I look like Jimmy Larson, act like Jimmy Larson. As children of God, the older we get, we should look like, act like, become more like our Father. See, that's where we have to start. We start that God loves us, has saved us. Because anything else we do after that is not to earn His trust or to earn His salvation or to earn His love. It's already there. So He says, therefore... As dearly loved children, 
He gives us three ways to walk. And this is what I want to tell you. No matter the family structure you have at your house, these three commands, these three steps can change the way your family operates. Now, last week, if you were here, I gave you a question to ask every day. And I'm not going to ask you whether you did that or not. But I gave you a question to ask, a task to do each day. I had one lady in the first service say, is there a limit on the number of times my husband can ask me, do you need anything right now? So it's a little annoying. It's like, nope, he's doing his job, all right? Three things. The first thing he tells us is that we need to walk in love. Dear children, based on the fact that you are children of God, walk in love. Love. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Now, I highlighted two things in this passage because they're the reasons for our walking in love. They're the motivations for our walking in love. They're the examples of what it means to walk in love. First of all, he tells us to walk in love as Christ has loved us. Well, how has Christ loved us? Unconditionally, sacrificially, always forgiving, never giving up love. He loves us unconditionally over and over and over again. And he says that in your relationships with one another, in your families, you are to walk in love. Doing it because of what Christ has done for us. What would that look like in your families if you started to live that way? I mean, just think of this, for example, like in your family, what would forgiveness look like if you started to forgive as Christ has forgiven you? How would your marriage operate if you started to forgive one another as Christ has already forgiven you? If you're in a blended family situation, how would that operate if you were to forgive your ex as Christ has already forgiven you? If you were to forgive your stepmother, your stepfather as Christ has forgiven you? You see, a lot of couples have a hard time with this. They want to focus on how the other person has hurt them or how they've disappointed them. And when you do that, you respond based on what they deserve because of what they've done to you. But one counselor says that when you do that, you have a problem with your belief in the gospel because you're acting like you're both primarily righteous people and you're asked to forgive someone who has wronged you rather than acting like you are both sinners in need of forgiveness. That has already been forgiven far more than by God than we could ever forgive another human being. We love because Christ loved us, but we also love because it tells us it's a fragrant offering to God. It says to love as Christ loved and gave himself for us a sacrificial. We're to love like Christ and Christ's love and sacrifice was an act of worship before our God. It's a sacrifice we make because we are wanting to show God that we understand His love for us. And as we forgive and as we love, as we extend grace and mercy to others, we're offering worship to our God. Here's why that's important. Sometimes we feel like that what God's calling us to do for someone, that person doesn't deserve. And many times, that's true. Um, I uh, was at a conference last year when uh, 
a guy named Paul Tripp spoke. And Paul Tripp's a guy that his writings and stuff I've been reading a lot over the last year and just as insightful in a lot of ways. He, start, he started this whole message off um, with a story of how he had become an angry husband and he didn't realize he was an angry husband. And how that he had become to a place where he and his wife were having difficulty and he didn't understand what was going on. And he said that on the way home one time from a speaking engagement, he was writing with his brother, who's also a Christian author, and they were having this discussion. And he said in that moment, he was shown like the veil was lifted, like the scales were taken from his eyes. He suddenly realized moments in his life when he had been angry and self-centered and self-righteous with his wife. He said, for instance, there was a moment... When uh, he said, I just thought of myself better than I was. He tells this moment when he and his wife were in a discussion, they were getting angry with each other. And he felt like she did not understand what was going on. Um, J.D. Greer, who's a pastor, says that he has no problem loving his wife like Christ loved the church. But doggone it, she better recognize that I'm doing it and tell me thank you for it. Okay. And so he says, he was having this conversation, Paul Tripp's having this conversation with his wife, and he said that, uh, he said to her in the conversation, however it came out, he said, I remember saying the words to her, honey, don't you realize how lucky you are that I'm your husband? Now he pastored a church at that time, and he said 90% of the women in our church would be happy to be married to a guy like me. To which she responded, I'm not one of them. <laughs> right? She got the last word there. Guys, just a tip. You're not going to win the argument, all right? It's, she's going to be better at the comeback. But he said, I had this such a self-centered understanding of who I was that I could not see that I was a sinner in need of forgiveness, offering forgiveness. And as I loved my wife and as I loved my kids, I was offering worship to God. One woman said that she couldn't bring herself to forgive a man that was in her life who had done her wrong. She said, I couldn't forgive him because he didn't seem to realize how much he hurt me. He hadn't changed nearly as much as he should. And then she said, I remembered he may never be worthy of my forgiveness, but Jesus is. When we live in love, walk in love, we are loving them as an offering to Christ. And sometimes that will go against what our heart feels, what we desire, what we think is good. But in light of what God has given, we obey because it's what we do as an act of worship. Anybody know what the number one movie in America is this weekend? Beauty and the Beast. A beautiful story of a lady taken hostage by a monster who falls madly in love with him while she's imprisoned by him in his castle. I heard a story, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the description of the movie, right? I heard a story about a, a teenage girl that went to see it, and she was talking about trying to figure out through all this stuff what she was supposed to, you know, how she was supposed to think about this from a Christian perspective. And she said as she walked through it, she realized that um, she talked to her dad, and her dad said, how was the movie? And she said, it, it was good, it was good. She said, except for this part that's in every Disney movie that you're just supposed to always follow your heart. She said, we know that that's not what we're supposed to do, is it? She said, because like that didn't go well for Adam and Eve. Or David and Bathsheba. For Abram and Sarah. 
But instead, we're supposed to follow what God has called us to do. Our acts of love towards others are ultimately for Jesus, even if they seem like they're being wasted on the person you're pouring them out upon. It's about the person. It's about Jesus. I mean, imagine with me for a moment a single mom who pours out her life to see her son have a chance at a better life. She works two jobs. She scrimps and saves so that she can keep him clothed and fed. She teaches him to be honest and to do hard work and to give to charity. And when he's finally old enough, she scrapes together enough money, puts him through college. He graduates, gets a job, and never talks to her again. Never sends her a Christmas card, birthday card, doesn't call, doesn't do letters. Doesn't text, doesn't email. But he's good. Like he tells the truth. He works hard. He gives money away to charity. Just like she taught him to do. And he thinks, I'm doing what she wants. I became the man she wanted me to be. But is that enough? If you're the mom, it's not. It's not simply enough to live a good life and ignore the relationship with the one person to whom you owe everything. But there are a lot of Christians who do exactly that with God. They try to live the right life for God without passionately pursuing God. The first thing we do is we walk in love. Here's the second thing. We walk in light. Now this goes all the way from chapter 5 verse 3 to verse 14. We're going to focus right in the middle there on verse 8 through 11. Where he says, walk. You were once darkness, but now you are light. So walk or live as children of light, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. What he's saying is that we need to work to discern, to test what is pleasing to the Lord. We need to figure it out. We don't need to just go along with what the world says. We don't need to conform any longer to the image of this world, to the way they want us to make us. But we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to point the light of the gospel into various areas of our lives, not just go with the flow. We're to think differently. We're to analyze it. We're to look at it. And we're to assume that our hearts, as we talked about earlier, is not going to steer us correctly, but that we must look into the wisdom of God and take his path in our lives. In your family life, here's the truth. There are going to be days when your heart is going to want to make you angry, when your heart's going to want to make you say things. If you're in a blended, mended kind of situation and you're trying to make it work, there are going to be days when it's going to be more difficult and your heart's going to say it's not worth it. If you're in a traditional family, there are going to be days that it's going to be real difficult and your heart's going to say it's not worth it. But Scripture tells us, That we are to walk in the light. And when the darkness around us tries to fit us into its mold, we expose it. We don't just go along with it. In fact, this won't be on the screen, but if you look in verse 14, if you've got your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 14, there's this great passage there where it says, wake up. Verse 14 says, get up, sleeper, rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The idea is that doing this, walking in the light, is going to be something that is going to take effort. Anybody here ever have trouble getting up from like a good sleep? Anybody here ever have trouble with that? Like there's some of you there in this room, like the alarm goes off, your feet hit the floor, you're singing, oh, what a beautiful morning. Woo, let's go, great day. 
And there are others of you that set your alarm clock an hour and a half early because you want to hit that snooze button as many times as possible, right? Why do they do the snooze in nine-minute increments? Let's just make it ten. Let's just round up to ten, all right? Like, I, I know I was going to work out today, but my, it'll be all right. I'll do it tomorrow. Snooze. God will forgive me if I don't get my quiet time in this one day. Snooze. Getting up is hard. How many of you have kids that have a hard time getting up in the morning? Anybody? Any parents in the room there? All right. Scripture says that for us being in this culture, it's like we are in a deep sleep. And we need to be awakened from it. We walk in love. We walk in light. And here's the last thing, and then we're done. We walk in wisdom. Wisdom means learning to think correctly about things not spelled out in Scripture and doing what calls us to do in the midst of it. And there are a lot of life's decisions that aren't directly talked to us about in Scripture. Like things like what job you'll take or how do you spend your time or how do you spend your money or who you hang out with. But walking in wisdom means making decisions in those areas in ways that fit well with an understanding of who God is and what He has done in His life and what He's doing in the world. Look at verse 15 and following in this passage from Ephesians 5. Pay careful attention. Again, this idea of being intentional, thinking about it, to how you live. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. It's the idea there is that we are to walk in wisdom. And one of the most important phrases in that whole thing is making the most of the time. If you have an, a different translation, an older translation, the phrase there might be redeeming the time. And the reason that it's there is because the culture we live in is evil. It is passing away. It is constantly trying to draw our attention away from the thing that God is doing. And we must be intentional about the way that we live in order not to just get sucked into the flow of what's happening in life. And in light of what we know is going on in the world, the question is, how should we use our time? The church is on a rescue mission. And it's our job to be part of the people that are on the front lines telling people that Jesus Christ came to save them. And the question is, how do we spend our time knowing that's happening? I mentioned to you a couple of times that I'm part of this group uh, in Goodlesville where we're walking through some of the dynamics of what's happening in Goodlesville and surrounding areas. And this past Thursday, we talked about planning. And we were when, met planning commissioners from Goodlesville. We met people that are planning commissioners from Metro Nashville. Um, and then towards the end of the day, we, uh, we got to sit in the city council chambers in Metro Nashville and have a conversation with Megan Barry, who's the mayor of Nashville. And you've heard these numbers. Some of you have heard these numbers, and they just kind of wash over us sometime. But it was, for some reason, it just came real to me at that time. But Nashville, in 20 years, in 20 years, they're suggested, they're proposing, they're projecting there will be a million more people in this area. In 20 years, a million more people. Well, doesn't that sound fun? A million more. And here's the thing that I was thinking about, okay? So I hear those numbers, and we're in what we're in, the reason those numbers are thrown out, because we're talking about transit and housing and development and how in the world is infrastructure going to handle a million people and all that stuff. I just leave that to people that that's their job, okay? 
But you know what I'm thinking? Statistics say that in Tennessee, Bible Belt, buckle of the Bible Belt for a lot of people, in Tennessee, seven out of ten people in our state are unsaved, lost, do not know Jesus as their Savior. The projections are that that million people, they're not coming from Tennessee. They're coming from all over. And the projections are that that number percentage is going to be higher of loss. But let's just take 7 out of 10. The people moving in are probably 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10. Let's just take 7 out of 10. If that means in 20 years there are going to be a million more people here than are here now. And you take that percentage, that means 700,000 more people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus. 700,000. And if that's true, then how does that determine how we spend our time and our money as churches, as individuals, and as families? I'm not saying you leave your career. I'm just asking, is there a way you can use your career to further the gospel? Or maybe for some of you it is meaning it's time to leave my career and do something else. Not necessarily full-time ministry. Could be that, but I want to do something to share the gospel. It's spring break week for schools here. It's spring break week for some colleges around. One of the largest mission fields we have in America today is our college campus. And you're only there for a short time and then you're gone. What would it mean to you to redeem the time, to make the most of your opportunity on your college campus during the four years, five, six, nine, ten, whatever it takes, that you're there? If you know the ship you're on is going down, what should your attitude be? Here's the thing. We know that our spot is secure if you're a follower of Jesus Christ in eternity. But we got people all around us that aren't. How would your family's life look different if you lived with the wisdom of the reality of the lostness around us and the way you invested your time? Three ways. Just like the basketball goal is the same height, these are the three things in any family that are solutions to the difficult things that are happening. We walk in love. We walk in light. And we walk in wisdom. Now here's the thing. We started this series talking about the reality of families. And that it's not as perfect as the TV shows us. Which is why we start each week with one of those sitcoms that makes it look like everything gets solved in 30 minutes. But the reality is that many of our families look different than that. Many of our families are not that. In fact... um, Our original idea for kind of an opening bumper for this series, opening video from this series, was we come up with things all the time that we don't have the technology or the funds to do, but would be cool if we did, all right? And our our original idea was to make an 80s, 90s style sitcom introduction video of the staff. And so cheesy smiles and everything and music going underneath it. And like what I wanted to do was to have like Susan and I standing out front smiling, our arms around each other, looking real happy. And in the background, the boys are just going at it fighting. And the girls are arguing over something. Because that you don't see that in the thing, but that's not just our family, any family. That's reality, right? Eli's a little, he's like, we didn't get to do that? Like I would have loved to fight my brother, all right? 
But whatever we're in, if we walk in love, we walk in the light and we walk in wisdom, God will bless who we are. Now, some of you know this, some of you don't, but um, I grew up in a blended family. And so my mom and my dad were both married uh, before they met each other. Uh, my mom and her first marriage had a son, Brian, my brother. Um, and I didn't know we were a blended family. That's not what they called it back then anyways. I didn't know we were a blended family until I was like eight or nine years old. I just thought we had an extra grandparent who would give us stuff at Christmas all the time, right? But part of the reason I didn't know, I didn't realize, I didn't understand that is because my dad and my mom were so in tune with walking with the Lord, walking in love, walking in light, walking in wisdom. And they weren't always, and I've told you this, they weren't always, they weren't perfect, no families are, but they did such a good job of following God's plan for our family. And I am thankful to the Lord that they were. And so whether you are in a mom and dad, two and a half kids, white picket fence family, or whether your family, when you do your family tree, is got all kinds of branches and deviations, God can redeem every family. He does it through the power of His love. Let's pray together.